edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas, uh, with episode 387 of the Survival Podcast. It is a Friday. I believe it is Friday, February 26th. So we are about to rock on into March. Our next show will actually be in March after a brief weekend. And uh, How many months have 28 days, folks? All of them. February only has 28 days. Anyway, a little aside there. What are we going to talk about today? We are going to talk about um, herbal medicine today. And we're going to continue a series that I started last year and kind of stalled on. It's going to end up being an eight-part series. This is part three of it. And as I'm doing this, I'm compiling a document called the North American Medicinal Plants Guide. Uh, which all member support brigade members can access the, the soft copy of. That should be updated and complete up to this series by tomorrow. All the dictation's done. Um, the only thing that we're going to have to add to it is some pictures, and I'm working on doing some editing for yet. And that once that's done, that document will be available in the members brigade uh, updated. So this is going to be, I think it's going to end up being an eight-part series. This is part three today. And today we're going to be talking about um, eight easy, uh, easy to grow backyard flowers. So these are flowers for your garden that also can help heal you. That's what we're going to be doing today. Um, we're also going to, I'm really going to be expanding this, uh, this, this series to a lot of other things as well. Like the next one I'm going to do in the series is going to be eight, uh, eight common herbs that you use for cooking that have medicinal use. I'm going to do one on eight despised weeds. Uh, and I'm going to keep doing that until I have them all broken down in groups of eight. The first ones we did were eight easy-to-identify native plants and then eight easy-to-identify invasive plants that have gone wild. So some of these things could cross over between groups, but I think grouping them to groups of eight will help you as you go through the whole series uh, as we do it, and then if you want to, downloading them, going through them individually. Another thing I'm having done, having all of these ones on medicinal plants transcribed uh, to text. So when this thing's completely done, you'll have the plant guide, you'll have all the audios in one zip file grouped together, and then you'll have a transcription of everything that I've said after the introduction point. So uh, this should be a good series, and I'm glad to be back on it. Before we go on with it, though, let's go ahead and knock out our housekeeping. Housekeeping item number one today, let's take care of our sponsor. Sponsor of the day number one, quite fortuitous, Western Botanicals. If you hear me mention a plant during this series that you can't find or grow, I bet you can get it uh, all ready to go, nicely prepared, and either organically grown or wild-crafted from Western Botanicals. Check out their website for everything you possibly need from an herbal standpoint, uh, from things that are already put together and prepared for you to raw whole herb that you can use in your own preparations. Next up today, uh, ready-made resources. Awesome site, delivers what it promises, all the resources you need as a prepper, ready-made, put together for you. I want to real quick today tell you about a new product that they have. Uh, They have a new product that is called uh, Natural High Pouch Food. And I would look at this as very similar to the pouch versions of Mountain House, the stuff that you buy at sporting goods stores uh, for backpacking and stuff like that, or for short-term emergency needs from uh, Mountain House. With the key difference that everything I've seen like that from Mountain House, uh, it serves one or two people, and uh, this new product, again, Natural High Pouch, 
actually can have uh, servings of one, two, or four. So larger servings for the family that wants to put together short-term emergency meals, this might be a really good option. They seem quite price competitive with Mountain House, and they offer a lot of, let's say, uh, uh, meals and recipes, what have you, that the Mountain House doesn't. So it's a good alternative. So check out ready-made resources. Not only will I put a link to them in the show notes today, I'll put a link to this new product line. I think you'll enjoy checking that out. Next up today, I want to um, remind you guys to check out our gear shop. Uh, t-shirts, hats, challenge points, check the, check it out. It's really cool. You'll find a link off the main website, thesurvivalpodcast.com. Um, next thing I want to do is, I forgot to tell you guys this. I told you in advance, but I didn't tell you after it was over, that there's a downloadable version you can listen to. On Tuesday night this week, I did a guest appearance on the Rifleman Radio Show, which is part of the uh, Revolutionary War Veterans Association and uh, the Appleseed Project. And it was a great interview. Again, it was about two hours long. I think about the first ten minutes, uh, the host scout, he's going over, like, where they're going to shoot next and all. You can fast forward that a little bit if you don't want to listen to all that and get ready to the interview. But it was a wonderful interview. Uh, I really enjoyed it. And if you'd like to catch that show, uh, again, it's about two hours long and the archives available. I'll put a link in today's show notes. Last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You get exclusive content available only to members, and you get a lot of other great stuff, uh, one being the Medicinal Plants Guide that I mentioned today. I'll leave it at that. I don't want to go long with today's uh, intro segment. Let's go ahead and get into um, these, these, these plants. So today what we're covering is eight plants that you can grow in your own backyard um, that are not really edibles. I mean, you can eat portions of every single one of them, but you might may or may not actually choose to do that. Some of the flowers are actually great added to salads as accents and things like that. But what we're really talking about today with these plants are plants that you could put into a bordered flower garden, your front yard, your backyard, your side yard, plants you could cut and put into a vase. And and somebody would just look at that and that go, that's flowers. So especially ladies that are, like, tired because your husband has, like, cut every inch of the garden down and planted something edible in there and you'd like some flowers, these are some flowers that you can grow that maybe you can convince them, hey, look, these have additional food value and additional medicinal value. But the point being, the way to group this group together, and remember, we're putting them into groups, not to be rigid. A lot of these plants can cross into different groups of of the, the groups of eight I put together. That's just to help you with your memory by going, okay, this is, this is a flower that, that can actually help you, all right? So before I go into it, I have to remind everybody, I am not a master herbalist. I am not a botanist. I'm giving you the information that I've gathered both in my life and through research. If you take anything and put it into your body, you are ultimately responsible for it, not me. I recommend that you consult with, with a, a, a trained herbalist at any point that you have any doubt whatsoever in your mind about anything. Plant identification is key and critical. The safest thing to do is to grow your own. That will give you a positive identification when you buy seeds from a known source. And if you are a pregnant woman or a lactating woman nursing a child, you really need to consult with a doctor or an herbalist or both before you do any of this. Because I can't tell you specifically all the ones that are a risk and all the ones that are completely safe for a pregnant female. So ultimately you are responsible for yourself with all of these uh, these shows about uh, herbal medications, all right? I give you the warnings when I find them, but overall, again, 
this is designed not so much so that you can become an herbal pharmacist, because I'm not qualified to make you an herbal pharmacist. This is to raise your level of awareness about which plants are available and how you can grow or find them and what they're traditionally used for and what science says about that and has validated a lot of these old traditional remedies, okay? Great. So disclaimer done. Let's go right into it. So as we look at the first one, what do we, what do we start out with? We start out with a, with a flower called purple coneflower, uh, better known as echinacea, uh, a scientific name. And I'm going to start adding the scientific names, and nobody put down my Latin because nobody's sure how Latin is actually really pronounced because everybody that pronounced it for real is dead now. Uh, but it's echinacea uh, purpia. Per, 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 That's how I would say it. Echinacea purpia. Purpia. Anyway, you can look it up yourself to make sure you have an, a positive ID. But echinacea, uh, also known as purple coneflower, what can we say about that? Well, it's a very easy to recognize perennial. It's, it's very hard to misidentify purple coneflower. Uh, it grows two to three feet high. Leaves are kind of oval with a coarsely toothed. The flower centers are bristled and they're orange in color. The flower petals are purple, and on rare occasions they may be white. So it's a pretty easy to identify flower. And if you just Google purple coneflower, look at a picture of it, it's one of those things, once you know what it looks like, it's really hard to misidentify. So what is echinacea traditionally used for? As, as you probably already know from uh, commercialism and uh, bottles of little supplements and all the stuff you hear on TV and the radio, echinacea has been traditionally used as an immune stimulator. It's also been poulticed, and that means kind of mashed up and made into a paste, and uh, used to aid healing and control infections on external wounds. And I can tell you for a fact, it works very well as a wound poultice. Uh, I've tried it that way myself. And, again, as you're experimenting with these plants, it makes a lot of sense to try the things that are completely safe. Uh, you, you scratch yourself working in the garden. Uh, maybe it's, a, a, you know, two scratches, one on the arm because double contact. Treat one and don't treat the other and, and see what the results are. Experiment and be safe with your experimentation. But I found it to definitely speed wound healing and prevent infections. Uh, so that's traditionally how the whole plant's used. The roots are pretty much used the same way. Uh, but they take two to three years to reach a harvestable size. When you harvest the roots in the fall, you want to wait till the plants have gone to seed. So that means the, the flowers have dried out, the seed heads have uh, kind of blown, and um, everything's kind of ready to return to the earth and, and wait to come back next year. And you dig them up kind of like little tubers, almost like little potatoes. And they can be then used the same way that the whole plant is used. This is something you probably don't want to do often because once you pull that tuber out of the ground, the plant, of course, is not coming back next year, where if you wait, it'll come back year after year after year. But if you're cultivating your own, it's a little bit more, uh, I'd say, permissible or easy to do. And as you broaden kind of your, your total number of purple coneflower, uh, you can take some tubers here and there. But again, two to three years to reach harvest time, so that should be used sparingly. This is a plant that a lot of herbalists now say we should use very sparingly. Uh, that we should really hold back on harvesting because it's become quite threatened because it's such a good plant for immune support and so many people know about it. It's so easy to identify and it's so safe that it's been over harvested. And I think they're right and I think they're wrong. I think they're wrong because you can buy a little packet of purple coneflower seeds and propagate them in your backyard so easily uh, that it, it's insane. And the seeds are very affordable, and it's a very hardy plant because it's native to uh, North America to begin with. 
So it's also something that if you're concerned with its, its habitat in the wild and you know a good place where it could grow, might make a good thing to make up a bunch of little seed ball bombs with and go out and reseed the stuff out in the wild. And if you do that and only uh, 20% make it, hey, that's a new little grove of uh, echinacea or purple coneflower, however you want to call it. Uh, so I do think it's something we should go ahead and continue to use but to be responsible in its use, we should propagate it. But that's why it fits so well in this grouping of eight flowers for the backyard. It's a beautiful flower. It's an absolutely gorgeous flower, uh, and it's very uh, good at attracting predatory insects, like small predatory wasps, and it's very good at pr- uh, attracting pollinating insects, like mason bees and normal honeybees and bumblebees. So this can be grown either in your flower beds or right in amongst your vegetables and have very beneficial effects in a variety of ways. And remember, since it's a perennial, it'll come back over and over and over again. One thing you want to be mindful of with uh, echinacea, when you harvest it, protect the plant from direct sunlight, which will reduce its efficacy very, very quickly. So as soon as it's harvested, get it into the shade, get it out of direct sunlight. Uh, it's a great plant to grow and utilize the whole herb. But for maximum effectiveness as an immune booster, this may be one that you're better off with commercial extracts for. Not that the whole herb doesn't work or work well, but the extracts tend to have a a more proven result than the whole herb. Sometimes one one thing like, sometimes that's true, and sometimes the whole herb's better. Um, I recommend that you experiment with this one. This is a very safe plant. Again, if you're a pregnant woman, please check with a doctor, check with an herbalist. I don't give that level of advice, and this isn't really advice, it's more information, but I do tell you that this is a pretty safe thing to experiment with. Um, The other thing to do is, if you're making your own extractions, pay attention to the preparation method. It's alcohol and water preparation. Uh, Alcohol-based or water-based extractions have different uh, properties. So there are certain things that when you do an extraction with alcohol, uh, from purple cone flower, you get a different profile of components than if you do a water extraction. That's true of many herbs, but it's specifically true here, and that's another thing that you can experiment with because they're also both very, very safe things to use and an easy-to-identify plant. Remember, if you get your own seeds and grow your own, you'll never make that mistake because you know what you've grown, you know what you've planted. Uh, let's move on to the next one. Okay, so next up on the agenda here is one of my all-time favorite medicinal flowers. This is... This is another one of the plants I call a wonder plant. It absolutely is amazing how much this one plant does. This plant is known as pot marigold, and and unfortunately because of that, a lot of people confuse it with uh, things like French marigold, which are part of the Tagastes species. This is Calendula officinalis, and I I think that is the right pronunciation, even though I'm weak on Latin pronunciation sometimes. But Calendula is the way that you should look for the seed in seed packets and in nurseries if you're going to buy started plants. But you need to have calendula, pot marigold, growing in your backyard. And when I get done explaining what this plant does, you'll understand why it should be in every backyard uh, in, in North America. It's one of the easiest to identify plants used in gardens today. Again, don't confuse it with the Degastus marigolds. Uh, Degastus marigolds are the French marigolds, the things that you see in little six-pack flats all over the place. Uh, those can be toxic and are generally not considered edible. Uh, most of the marigolds sold in nurseries are that, so be careful with what you're doing here. Uh, and use uh, calendula officinalis for medicinal use. The plant is an annual which means that you have to replant it every year. Or in some really warm areas, it might be a short-lived perennial. It might make it two or three seasons. But there's nowhere it really is a a good 
uh, perennial plant that just comes back year after year after year. In the right environments, of course, it can recede itself, but it's not reliable exactly where it's going to recede itself. So this is something you need to look at starting new plants for every year. As beautiful flowers are generally orange uh, or yellow, and I'll tell you what, it's a species that not a whole lot of cross-pollination and selective breeding has been done with. So there's a lot of work left to do with that if you want to uh, pick a plant that you can experiment with, you know, hand pollination and uh, breeding a few generations of and seeing what you can do with it. Uh, the leaves, again, are very different from the Tagaski species of marigold. They're, uh, they're uh, simple oval leaves arranged in an alternate pattern and generally two to four inches in length. Uh, so what, do we, what can we do with this? Well, the, both the leaves and the flower petals, petals of uh, calendula or pot marigold are not only edible but medicinal in value. The flowers are used uh, both fresh and dry, but only the petals should be used. You should throw the seed heads out or use them for replanting. Uh, it's a great anti-inflammatory. It's exceptional for treating bites and stings and providing it, uh, relief from itching and sunburn. This is the plant that when my wife had a, uh, a bee sting or a wasp sting or an ant sting, we're not even sure what it was, that was really swelling up. And she has a, a mild allergic reaction to these things. But I made a poultice of this and put it on the bite. And within five minutes, it was flat, dead level with no more swelling and very little itching. And uh, it turned what usually is an all-day thing, even with some uh, Benadryl, into a short-lived five-minute episode. Uh, that was simply by applying, and it wasn't like, you know, prepared really well. I just basically mashed it up, mixed it with a little bit of water to make it stick and put it on the bifor. And that was how quickly the response was. It also is very good as an antimicrobial, so it, it, it tends to uh, kill a lot of little bacteria and viruses, all kinds of little bad bugs that are out there that can infect wounds. So it helps with wound healing, and it has astringent properties. And remember, astringent properties are anything that tightens up a body tissue. So it's it's useful for that purpose as well. It's also an antiseptic. It improves blood flow. It's an antifungal agent. It can be used to treat athlete's foot, ringworm, and candidia, which, of course, is a yeast infection. A tincture applied directly to cold sores encourages healing. Uh, you make it into a cream, and it's good for acne and diaper rash. And an infusion is good for aiding digestion. It relieves colitis and symptoms of menopause. Nice, huh? Uh, you can also make an infusion of the petals and use it as a rinse to lighten and brighten your hair. Uh, pot marigold makes an attractive cut flower. can be used in the vegetable garden to help with insect control. And the flowers can be used to make a very nice table wine. What do you want from one plant? Uh, we've got a plant here that's antimicrobial, antiviral, uh, antifungal, uh, treats yeast infections, aids digestion, uh, helps prevent wound infections, heals wounds, acts as an astringent, uh, serves to attract beneficial insects to your garden, is pretty sitting in your garden or sitting in a vase on the table, and you can make wine out of it. And it'll attract, again, it attracts beneficial insects. And it's actually considered a pot herb, specifically the, the green portions of it, can be lightly steamed and consumed. And you take the petals and drop them into a salad, and they kind of set off a salad, and they have a, a nice little tiny background fruity flavor that they add to a salad. I, again, this is why I call this a wonder plant. There's very few things in nature that do this much with one plant, and yet, because it's a little bit more finicky to grow with the heat, 
then the Tagastus Marigold, the Tagastus is taken over, because it's easier to throw out in front of an apartment complex and not really take care of at all. But with a little bit of care, these things go a long way to improving your health in your own backyard. It's almost like having a little mini pharmacy. If you said you can only have ten plants growing in your backyard uh, to use for medicinal purposes, what ten would they be? Calendula would definitely be on the list right alongside of other things like uh, garlic. Garlic is probably the other all-purpose thing. Uh, so these are, this is definitely a plant. If you're only going to like pick certain ones of these to start planting in your backyard, include calendula. Okay, next one up on the list should be uh, real uh, familiar with anybody that's even kind of kicked the tires of uh, herbal medicines and herbal teas, so to speak, and that's chamomile. Uh, or it, the best I can do with the Latin is ch- chamomilla recutita. Uh, so it's uh, really easy to identify plant. It has small daisy-like flowers that most people are probably familiar with already. They're generally about three-quarters of an inch across. The flowers have little white petals and yellow centers. Uh, they grow overall six inches to about two feet in height, and they're slightly apple-scented, and the Latin literally means uh, earth apple or apple-like, or depending on you know which translation you read, but it's all about the fact that there's this apple scent that's very common to chamomile. So if you have a, a daisy-like plant that you're not sure of, it doesn't smell like apples in, in some way. It's probably not chamomile. Again, my recommendation with these plants, grow your own from known seed stock, and you won't have any doubt as to what you're dealing with. The flowers and leaves are used as a tea, and they're really famous for a calming effect and simply as an enjoyable beverage. A very traditional uh, tea for someone to help them go to sleep at night would be chamomile and mint. And there's a lot of uh, science to back up that kind of folk medicine use uh, as being highly effective. And, you know, the people that drink a cup of chamomile peppermint tea at night that normally have insomnia, that go right to sleep after it, can tell you that it tends to work quite well. Uh, They're also traditionally used for ailments such as colic, Diarrhea, insomnia, ingestion, gout, sciatica, which is, you know, bad back, uh, headaches, colds, fevers, flu, cramps, and arthritis. So there's definitely um, a calming effect that comes from chamomile in, in various uh, methods of use. And there's also a, a pain-relieving component to chamomile, uh, an anti-inflammatory uh, response that it seems to help with things, again, like sciatica, headaches. And then there's also kind of a fever restriction uh, component of chamomile. That's not going to even have the level of fever-reducing capacity that something like a simple aspirin tablet does. But generally speaking, it helps the person maybe not so much reduce a fever, but deal with the fever better. Because remember, fever is part of our body's natural healing processes. The body raises the temperature to kill the bad microorganisms, and the goal of the body is to find a temperature high enough that you can deal with it, even though you don't like it, but the infecting agent cannot. So that's why it's kind of like you're cooking the disease. That's why the body has that response. So if you can deal with it better without fully reducing fever, especially with adults that can generally handle a fever better than young child or the elderly, um, there's actually a lot of benefit to kind of dealing with a fever, at least in, in the opinion of some people, myself included. Uh, chamomile, if you ask a German what it means, it basically means capable of anything to them. Uh, which reflects both its broad traditional use and modern proven effective components. The oil, uh, specifically essential oils, are proven effective as an antifungal, antibacterial, and antispasmatic, 
and anti-inflammatory and may help alleviate some allergic responses. Now, again, the first part that I give you in these is kind of the folk traditional way that herbalists have used them. The second part here that I'm giving you, these are uh, laboratory tests. A lot of the stuff has been done in Germany that are a little more open to this than us. So the ability of the essential oils to do things like kill funguses, kill bacteria, uh, work as an antispasmatic, be an anti-inflammatory, and alleviate allergy responses are actually scientifically proven results from the essential oils. Um, there's also a component in the leaves called apigenin, I think is the right way to pronounce it, apigenin, and it's been shown to have a dozen different compounds with anti-inflammatory action. So when you take, this is how you kind of blend the two worlds together. You take the traditional folk use, and somebody has a headache, and they have a little bit of chamomile tea, and they say, yeah, I kind of feel better. Well, is that just uh, a psychosomatic response or a psychogenic response, or is there some science behind it? Well, when we realize how much anti-inflammatory action is in the essential oils, and we take something like fresh chamomile, and we make a tea out of it, we realize that if you look at the top of that little cup of hot tea, you'll see these little bubbles of oil. Well, that's the oils from the plant itself rising to the top of the tea. That's exactly why you're getting that response. So what I love is I do more and more research about traditional herbal medications is that I learned that modern science has backed up traditional use in, in many, many ways. So what are we going to go to next? We're going to go to one of the most beautiful flowers and a symbol of love and friendship throughout the world known as the rose. Specifically, we're looking at the type of rose that's known as Rosa Ragusa which are the traditional English cottage roses, the, the, not the, the modern, you know, five different hybridization. Not that there's really anything wrong with those. And all roses that you can find, true roses are edible. Uh, many of them that are even not of the Ragusa uh, species uh, will produce hips. All hips are edible. But if you go with the traditional roses when you're cultivating your own, you'll find they need a lot less care and maintenance. They'll produce larger hips. They'll, they'll be more uh, resistant to drought and lack of care and uh, just a more carefree plant. So that's why I prefer them. Uh, again, identifying a rose is pretty easy. I think anybody out there can pretty much look at a rose and go, that's a rose. It's so well known because they're so common throughout the world because they have so much of an ability to bring beauty and uh, inspiration into uh, many situations. They're, you know, they all have thorns. The best medicinal varieties, to me, have large hips because and the hips are the little fruits that grow on the rose plant, because that is a big part of where medicinal value and really nutritive value comes from with roses. So what can we do with roses? Well, the flowers, uh, all rose petals are edible, and they're often used in aromatherapy. And there's a lot of uh, studies that back up that that aromatherapy from a rose has a very relaxing effect on the body and allows the mind that's kind of too tied in to the modern world where you're stressed to unplug. And to me, that's hugely important. Because if we look around the world, we find that as soon as a society begins to become stressed, the death rate, you know, goes up and the life expectancy goes down. And even if the life expectancy doesn't drop, the onset of chronic diseases go up. You wonder why, you know, the guy that lives in the hills of Italy that eats pasta, bread, and wine every day and cheese doesn't have the cholesterol problems that an American does Again, there's medical people who will disagree with me. This is my opinion, all right, so this is not like medical scientific fact, but my opinion is because that guy's not stressed. You know, he takes a two-hour nap in the middle of the day. Uh, he doesn't work really hard. 
He chills out all the time. And I think there's a little bit of, uh, you know, local biology going on there, blood typology, generally a Mediterranean AB blood type thing going on. But I think a lot of it's just a re- relaxing from stress and not having the stress that, you know, the high-end corporate guy in North America has who's, who's fighting the, you know, the corporate dragons every day, and he doesn't even eat half as bad as this guy, but by the time he's 42, his arteries are clogged. So I think having that de-stress is, is very important. Chinese have used rose petal tea uh, for a long time to what they call regulate vital energy and promote blood circulation for stomach, uh, stomach aches, liver pain, and other gastrointestinal disorders. So if you were not feeling well in your stomach, just kind of a little woozy or whatever, uh, one of the things that a Chinese herbalist may prescribe for you, among other things, would be a little bit of rose petal tea. Can't hurt anything. And you can combine things and experiment. Rose petals, chamomile, mint. I know, like, I'm supposed to be the survivalist, and here I'm talking about making rose petal freaking tea, guys. But I'm also talking about the ability to adapt to a situation where we don't have medical support available to us. And in a stressful time, a stressful, long-term survival situation, the things that I'm talking about today can literally save, prolong, and enhance the quality of life. It doesn't make any, any sense whatsoever to survive and be miserable. So let's move on to the hips, which to me with roses are far more exciting. The fruit of the rose, also called hips, is chiefly a source of vitamin C. In fact, it has more vitamin C ounce per ounce than any citrus fruit out there. Hence, it's off, uh, it awful, uh, sorry guys. Hence, it also has uh, antioxidant effects and the same immune system support as any source of vitamin C. And what I mean by that is, you know, when cold and flu season comes around, uh, two things that a lot of people tell you to, to take are vitamin D, which we, during the wintertime, we make less of that with our skin, and vitamin C to support the immune system. So anything with vitamin C, high concentrations, is going to help support the immune system. Does that mean if you shoot down 2,000 milligrams of vitamin C every day, uh, you'll never get sick? No. But it does mean that your immune system is more engaged to help support you and prevent illnesses or mitigate them when you do get them. See, the big thing, though, is I look at a rose hip and I say, that's a natural multivitamin. Let me tell you what's in a rose hip. They contain all of the B vitamins along with vitamins D, E, and K. So for an immune support, what did I just tell you? D. And vitamin K is actually proven to be quite effective as an immune support vitamin as well. So to me, rose hips are a huge immune booster. They also have anti-inflammatory properties, and they've been recently shown to be useful in the treatment of patients suffering from knee and hip osteoarthritis. So if you have maybe an elderly parent that has some hip pain or some knee pain, you might just offer them a little bit of rose hip tea or maybe a rose hip once a day. That simple. And uh, the beautiful thing is, can't hurt anything with that. Very, very safe. Rose hips are basically a food. It, just like you're not going to go out and eat too many potatoes that you're going to hurt yourself, you're not going to go out and eat too many rose hips and hurt yourself. And I want to end with this thought on roses. Um, the beauty factor. Again, I know this is the survival podcast, right? Um, and we talk about, you know, guns and, 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 and hunting and all this other great stuff. But the beauty factor of roses can't be discounted. As a form of therapy, both visually and from the aroma standpoint, people that are, like, in good cheer, they tend to heal faster and more reliably uh, than those that are depressed. You know, and all the way back in AD 77, a long time ago, there was a Roman writer named Pliny, 
He recorded 32 disorders that responded to treatment with rose preparations, uh, and medieval, medieval herbals contained many entries that tell of the restorative properties of rose preparations. And I can only find so many reasons that somebody would respond well from treatment with rose, and it leaves some holes. And I believe the holes are really kind of filled in with just being made to feel better so that the body can naturally heal. It's also the case, though, that I believe that many times in the past, um, we had people that were highly vitamin deficient. And when you add rose hips to the diet, a lot of those vitamin deficiencies and some pretty critical vitamins are remedied. So a lot of these, these uh, diseases and disorders of the past before people knew how to understand them and they were called different things than we called them today and we didn't really know what they were may have been directly affected just by having more vitamins in the diet. And even when a modern doctor who just gets tunnel vision sometimes, not to put these guys down because, again, if I get in a wreck and I have a, 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 a yield sign stuck in my spleen, please take me to a doctor very, very quickly because he might be able to save my life. He may not at that point, but definitely an herbalist isn't going to be able to help me. But doctors do get tunnel vision, and what they'll say is, well, this particular disorder has nothing to do with a deficiency in vitamin A and vitamin E. But they don't say, well, would a person deficient in vitamin A and E have a much harder time warding off this illness, where a person that had a sufficient nutritive profile be able to fight it more. And I think a lot of these ancient uses of these plants come down to having a good vitamin intake. And let me tell you something, the average person walking around in North America and throughout the modern world today is highly deficient in vitamins. We're well fed, but we're extremely deficient as far as nutritional value goes. That's why I'm big on growing your own food. And a lot of these things, you know, roses don't have to just be used when you're sick. Um, they're quite enjoyable. Rose petals and hips also make a great wine. They make a great jelly, so they can become part of the diet and a supplemental source of vitamin C. And I don't know how many times I've heard people say, well, if the shit hits the fan, what are we going to do for vitamin C? Rose hips, got it covered, more than you'll ever need. Uh, so let's go on from there. But roses, folks, again, another one of my plants I would say, super plant, top 10, must be in your backyard. Next, I'm going to give you kind of another wonder plant. When you hear all the stuff that it does, uh, very, very common, native to uh, the west coast of the United States, um, relative to the watercress family, it's called nasturtium, uh, or nasturtium gambelli. Uh, that's the best I can do with the Latin pronunciation again. Nasturtiums, again, relative to the watercress family, easy to identify. Leaves are kind of round and shield-shaped. Once you see them, you know them. Uh, they have a small stalk that attaches to the leaf blade, uh, to the stem. The center of the leaves generally has a little white, kind of white dot or kind of really light green spot in the center. And then there's like these little arms that radiate along the leaf ribs out toward the edges. So it's one of those things, again, when you see it, you know it, and you'll know it forever. It's very, very, very easy to identify. The flowers are brightly colored, generally have five main petals, and they come in just a tremendous variety of colors, yellows, reds, oranges. Um, about the only thing I've never seen, I've never seen any kind of a blue or purple-colored nasturtium. It may exist, but I don't know about it. And the flower petals are kind of really thin and papery. They're also kind of spicy. There's a mustard, mustard characteristic uh, to uh, nasturtium. Now, if you don't like yellow paint mustard for hot dogs or whatever, don't let that scare you. It's more of like a mustard green uh, type of uh, a heat to nasturtium flowers. The leaves have more of it than the flowers. So if you don't like really spicy stuff, and you want to put some nasturtium into a salad, you're better off going with the flowers. And you'll find it most concentrated with the flowers down in the stamen 
uh, pistil area where the flower comes together. So one of the things you can do with flowers to mitigate that, if, it's, if again, if it's too intense for you, I don't find it intense at all, but I know some people, you put a little bit of black pepper on something, and they're like, wow, that's too hot, it burns my tongue. So if, if that's you, one of the things you can do is just pluck the individual petals, and you'll get less of that heat response, but you'll get less of the effective uh, components in the plant as well. So what can we do with an assertion? Again, you can find assertion seeds at every place that sells garden seeds in America. They'll grow from one end of the country to the other. All they ask is that you wait till it's not going to freeze and it's relatively warm out and the, the sun's shining in the sky to plant them. They grow, they kind of climb, and they're just a wonderful plant for bringing in beneficial insects and predatory insects. And then they have all of the following uh, kind of uh, beneficial effects. The leaves and flowers are edible. You just chop them up, throw them in a salad if you want to. It's an effective treatment for uh, internal, internal bacterial infections, most especially those that affect the skin and urinary tract, as well as respiratory and digestive systems. Uh, it's also been used to treat fungal infections. So there's a, uh, an antifungal component at work there as well. It also has natural antibiotic effects, but unlike orthodox antibiotics like penicillin, ampicillin, tetracycline, and stuff like that, it doesn't do any damage to our intestinal flora, or what we would call the probiotics within our gut tract. So you can eat nasturtium and nasturtium flour, and you have a, a great uh, antibiotic effect. On, on, on certain uh, things that might infect us, certain bacteria that would infect us, but the positive impacting bacteria are not adversely affected by all at all by this. Again, assertion is best looked at as a food that has medicinal properties in it. Uh, again, an alternative to watercress. The oils are also antibiotic. This is the science behind it. But done research have found the oils being tested to be antibiotic, antifungal, antiviral, and antibacterial, exactly what the folk treatment has always been. Uh, the properties can be used to treat infections, colds, flu, digestive upsets that stem from overgrowth of yeast, uh, or from parasites. So it has an antiparasitic uh, value to it as well. It also boosts the immune system, which helps the body resist infections in the first place. It also stimulates the appetite promotes digestion, supports metabolism. It's mildly warming, so it helps heat the body, which uh, if you have uh, conditions that the Chinese herbalist would call too cool of a condition, it, it counteracts that. Um, it makes an ideal chest plaster for coughs and colds, but you have to use it sparingly and briefly because it actually can irritate the skin because of the mustard-like compounds in it. But used short duration sparingly, it makes a good chest plaster. It's also another one of these kind of vitamin, multivitamins, you know, that you pick. Uh, the herb is a source of vitamins A, B1, B2, niacin, B6, and C, and it also has a huge supply of the mineral iron. And, of course, it, the flowers are a great spicy accent to your summer salad. So, again, how much do we expect from one plant before we realize it's not just a flower? we got something that's antibacterial, antifungal, something that helps with digestive problems. We have a, a naturally occurring antibiotic that doesn't damage the positive aspects of the biology going on in our gut system. We can throw it in a, in a salad. It smells good. It attracts predatory insects. It's very hardy. It only grows kind of in the early part of the year. It doesn't seem to do well in the late part of the year. It's a plant that naturally comes up in the spring in its native range. Again, western United States, heavily, heavily throughout parts of California. Um, 
But you can get it to grow late in the season, just by seeding it late in the season. Uh, I've been able to get it to grow kind of on the backside of fall a little bit. The peak heat, it just doesn't seem to handle that very well here in Texas. In other parts of the country, you may be able to succession plant this stuff and get it to grow outside of its normal range because you're kind of tricking the seed. Um, but everything in the nasturtium is edible, including the seeds. They also are very easy to allow some of the blossoms to stay on the plant, let them go to seed, harvest your own seeds, save them for next year, and they have a high potential for the guy that wants to experiment again. I'm going to get this color nasturtium and this color nasturtium and a little um, cotton swab, and I'm going to manually pollinate them and close them off and, and, and see what I can do to create new varieties and variations of nasturtiums, except you'll find most of it's already been done. This, these plants have just been just natural cross-pollination and man playing around with them for a long time. There's so many varieties and colors of nasturtium that can be grown. These are a plant, though, folks. Direct sow them into the ground. Don't start these in little peat pots and things like that. They never do well. They grow a very quick, deep taproot system, and when that hits the bottom of that container, it kind of bends, and it never really fully develops well in the ground. Uh, you'd have to put them in a very deep container uh, to grow them well. So large containers you can grow them in, but don't start them in pots. Put them directly into the ground once all danger of frost has passed and the ground has kind of warmed up a bit. Okay, moving on. Here's the next one. This one's going to have some cautions in it, so pay attention to the cautions when we get to them. But it's called daylily. Daylily. I mean, come on, lilies? Lilies are medicine? Well, yeah, they are. Daylilies, first of all, easy to identify perennial flower. That means it comes back every year. It's both a backyard staple and gone wild in a lot of the, lot of the country. I see daylilies up and down the highways in the springtime, uh, in the medians and on the shoulders throughout Dallas, Fort Worth, the whole area. I drive down 20, they're there. I go up Loop 12, they're there. Right amongst the blue bonnets and the Indian paintbrush. I go all the way up to Frisco, look on the side of the road, daylilies. They go wild, they grow crazy, and once they establish, they come back over and over and over again. Uh, the flowers are really easy to identify. They form clumps, and they, the leaves are sword-like. The flowers always will face upward or outward. If you see the flowers facing downward, that is not a daylily, and there's several species of flowers that you might think that's a, a daylily, uh, and they can actually be toxic. So the flowers of daylilies never face downward. Anything facing downward, there's certain orchids, uh, there's other native wildflowers throughout the United States that it could be, and you probably want to stay away from them. Uh, the petals are striped in the middle and curved back, and generally look at it like an orange-yellowish color. Again, you can go to any store uh, that sells plants and find daylilies growing there and look at them and know exactly what you're looking for, or look at the medicinal plants guide if you're an MSB member and get a picture of them. Once you know what this plant looks like, you're not going to mess that up. Very easy to identify. So what are used for medicine? Traditionally, mostly it was the roots and the young shoots would have higher concentrations of the therapeutic values. But this is what you're going to be, you want to use caution here. Wait for the end to hear it. Uh, they've been used for over 2,000 years in China to treat breast infections, turbid urine. We'll talk about what turbid urine means in a minute. Estrogen imbalances and a variety of ailments. It's also a folk cancer treatment for breast cancer, which probably comes from the fact that it has been effective in treating, let's say, uh, breast infections, but there's no, there's no uh, scientific proof whatsoever that has any impact as a preventative or a treatment for breast cancer. Um, now, moving on to the parts that maybe make more sense for you to use would be the flowers and the buds. Uh, they're also used as a diuretic and an astringent, 
And uh, they also uh, are good for treating uh, conditions like jaundice and uh, to aid respiratory and gastrointestinal disorders. Uh, Chinese studies indicate that the root extracts are antibacterial. They're useful against blood flukes, and the extracts of the root have also been proven an effective diuretic. So that's the modern science. Well, here's the other side of it. Here's the warning. Uh, the roots and the young leaf shoots are considered potentially toxic. Uh, Chinese reports indicate that the toxin accumulates in the system and adversely affects the eyes, even causing blindness in extreme cases. Using the flowers exclusively should be practiced by all but the trained master herbalists. So I'm saying don't go around eating lily shoots and roots. I don't think that's a good idea. I certainly can't recommend it. If you want to do that, then I hope you're doing it under some guidance. So there are effective compounds in there, but toxins build up. And I see this like any drug. If you take too much of any drug for too long, it has the potential to build up in the system and eventually cause damage and or death. So we might take something like a drug that my wife had to take when she was dealing with a condition called trigeminal neuralgia, uh, which was called capenzamine or cafenzamine, I remember how to pronounce it, but this drug was an anti-seizure medication. It really wasn't for pain, but because of the way this neuralgia affects, it's almost like a seizure-like response, it was very effective uh, in, in treating it. And the, the common name of this drug is called Tegretol. Well, you could take so much of it for so long, but she had to be constantly tested to make sure it wasn't accumulating in her system, because if she had taken too much of it for too long, it could actually destroy bone marrow. You end up in a hospital in intensive care, having a bone marrow transplant, destroying your immune system. So that's a drug that's prescribed every day for seizures uh, and for trigeminal neuralgia, but yet it can cause very, very toxic side effects. Uh, that's how I see the roots and the shoots of daylily. I know people eat it. People eat it all the time. It's, it's, it's widely seen as an edible. Uh, the daylily shoots are something you can eat. I believe if you had to eat them for a day, it wouldn't be really that big a deal. Your body will have time to cleanse it out. But if you ate them every day, you definitely could have these toxic side effects. So I personally don't recommend that. But the flowers, the petals, and the buds, I see as a great edible. Uh, there's a lot of things that you could do with them. Again, they're a great salad accent, and they have quite a bit of medicinal value as well. Of course, they also look beautiful in your backyard and in your plantings, and that's what today's all about, the flowers that look good in our yards that also can help us heal. Uh, the next one today is lavender, lavandula angustifolia. I think is the right way to say that, angustifolia, lavandula angustifolia, but lavender. I mean, come on, this is another one of these plants that just about anybody can identify, and once you know what it looks like, it's easy to identify over and over again. It's also a perennial flower, which is why it's a great thing to have in the backyard, because it'll come back year after year after year. It's also very hardy, and it spreads very well because it's a member of the mint family. So think about where you plant it, because over time, especially by its third year, if you're taking good care of it, you're going to have to control lavender. It will become invasive. It is not as invasive as something like spearmint or peppermint. It's not that bad. But it's, it can be quite invasive if not controlled. But it's fairly easily controlled. It has a distinctive light blue flower that I think most people are familiar with. It's in a spiral pattern. It's held up on spikes rising above the leaves. The flowers are usually blue, violet, or lilac in color. And the individual blossoms are tubular uh, with five little lobes on each little flower. So lavender, buy your own seed, buy your own plants, uh, is really an easy thing uh, to grow 
and really uh, has many rewards uh, coming back on it. Now, as far as medicinal value, a tea of the flowers is beneficial to the nervous system, and it has a mild antidepressant effect, as do many plants that have kind of that bluish or purplish flower, as long as they're safe plants to utilize. Scientific evidence suggests that aromatherapy with lavender may slow the activity of the nervous system, improve sleep quality, promote relaxation, and lift mood in people who are, are suffering from sleep disorders. So basically what they're saying is, People that don't sleep well get depressed, and lavender can help them sleep well, and when they can sleep well again, they're not as depressed. That's putting that in layman's terms. And I think there's a lot of validity to that. If you can't sleep, and I give you something that helps you sleep that's not addictive, doesn't cost anything, right, because it grows in your backyard, it's probably a good alternative to the sleep aids that a lot of people become quite addicted to, and it's definitely a better idea than popping antihistamines in an attempt to go to sleep, because folks, a lot of the stuff that's like, you know, will help you sleep, that's sold over the counter, is nothing but either Benadryl or a Sudafed derivative or something like that, they're an antihistamine, which causes drowsiness, well, if you don't need an antihistamine, you're taking them, you have adverse effects, if you take them consistently, you have more and more adverse effects, and you build a tolerance to antihistamines over time, so it takes more to make you have that sleepy feeling, so those things are supposed to be used for very temporary, I just can't sleep tonight, Not I always have trouble going to sleep, so I always take one of these. Whereas you can use things like lavender aromatherapy or a lavender tea, lavender chamomile tea, right, whatever, uh, you can use that daily. There's no adverse effects to doing that whatsoever. Now, looking a little deeper at the scientific level, if we extract the oils of the plant and get down to the lavender oils, um, they have a tremendous number of volatile oils, including one called linalool, uh, and they have one called lavendulic acetate, uh, borneol, camphor, limousine, uh, canadine, uh, curmers, and, uh, curamanis, and one called urosolic acid. So what's the big deal about all these oils? Well, they are the primary source of its comative and antispasmatic and antidepressant quality. So the plant itself, it's these oils that give it these effects. So by using lavender oil, from a commercially prepared extract, we can enhance its abilities. So we can both grow it in our backyard, or we can purchase a lavender oil. And actually extracting oils from plants isn't difficult, and I'll do some stuff toward the end of the series on how to do that. You just generally need a lot of plant to get a little bit of oil. So sometimes it makes more sense to buy or barter in exchange for uh, essential oils. Uh, a number of studies have reported that lavender essential oil may be beneficial in a variety of conditions, including insomnia, uh, hair loss, anxiety, stress, and post-operative pain. And I can't find the documentation on this, so I don't put it in the guide, but I'll tell you today on the show that I remember hearing a study talked about on the radio at some point in my life that said that there was a, hospitals in Europe, I believe Germany, that had gone to just simply... Uh, setting up little misting systems throughout the hospital, and every once in a while just spraying a little bit of lavender oil uh, into the entire uh, facility everywhere except maybe intensive care, I guess, which might have been a great place for it, but anywhere where it wouldn't really bother anybody. And the, the, the thought was it was initially to, uh, and I believe this is right, again, I'm trying to use memory recall here, that it was really just a scenting thing, because hospitals have that hospital stink, right? And a lot of people don't even like to go to hospitals just from that, stink, that antiseptic stink. 
So they started doing this with lavender, and I think it was kind of like a, a hospital not for a lot of intensive care and things, like out of a, 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 a lower echelon hospital. But all of a sudden, the infection rates, the, the secondary infection rates plummeted at this hospital, just from, you know, atomized uh, lavender oil being released. Again, consider that one hearsay, but it, it seems to have a lot of validity to me, and I wonder if we would take some of these essential oils like lavender, like chamomile, like calendula, and if we were to start doing that, how much of an antiseptic effect and a positive emotional effect could we have in places like old folks' homes or hospitals, especially hospitals treating minor injuries where we don't have to worry so much about maybe an irritation effect from these things, and not overpoweringly, just modest little tiny spritzes, so to speak, on some kind of timer. So, again, that one's hearsay, uh, but it has a lot of validity with me. It makes sense. And I do, I can tell you that I might not have it 100% right, but it was something to that effect. And if anybody can find any documentation on any place, if it was either Germany or England or somewhere where this was done, I'd love you to send it to me so I can point other people in that direction. Okay, the last one today is called California Poppy. And um, a lot of people think of California as the gold state, right, because of the gold rush and all. But it originally uh, had people refer to California as golden, whereas the Spanish explorers were off the coast of Canada. They looked at the hillsides, and they looked like gold. And it was these beautiful orange uh, and yellow California poppies all over the hillsides of California. So really easy plant to identify again. The flower of the California poppy uh, can be about three quarters to two inches in width. They give small ones, big ones, that type of thing. The flowers generally have four petals, and they're kind of papery, uh, like sort of like an assertion. They're arranged in a fan shape. They're usually orange in color. Sometimes they can be yellow. The flowers come up, uh, just one flower per stalk, so they're a single single flower per stalk. The plant's kind of a blue-green color. It can grow you know, from seven inches to about two feet in height. And the leaves are most often between one to two inches long. So easy plant to identify. And another one of these plants, if you buy some seeds, plant it and grow it and look at it one time, you'll know that's a California poppy for the rest of your life. It's not real easily confused with other plants. So what's used on this? The whole plant, the leaves, the stems, and the flowers. California poppy offers kind of a mild pain-relieving uh, opiate alkylate, alkaloids. Uh, but unlike the opium poppy, the alkaloids are completely free of any toxic or addictive effects. So it's not a substitute for opium or anything that comes from the opium poppy, but there are opiate alkaloids, again, in there that provide uh, some pain relief and stress-reducing effects. The plant's also useful, obviously, for insomnia, anxiety, agitation, mood disorders, depression, headache, migraine, and mild neuralgia. So severe neuralgia is probably not going to be alleviated by this, but a mild nerve pain uh, is often sedated by the use of California poppy. Now, um, kind of the scientific stuff backing up the traditional use of the plant. A lot of studies are indicating now that there's two particular alkaloids in California poppy. One is called californine, and the other one is called protopine. Uh, and they are probably responsible for the overall medicinal qualities of the herb. So not discounting all the other active components when we use a whole herb, because a lot of times we find that even if a particular component is the most active component, the, the plant is kind of its innate intelligence is good for humans. Some of the other components that we consider inert have uh, mitigating effects and prevent side effects. But these two particular ones, again, californine and protopine, are, are probably responsible for most of the medicinal properties of California poppy. 
what they do is they act sort of like uh, something called a benzo affetting. That's the best I can do with it. But that's a group of prescription anti-anxiety and anti-insomnia medications, such as the prescription medication value. So you have here is herbal value without the side effects. Obviously not quite as effective, but again, none of the side effects. And what these compounds will do is help relieve muscle spasms, again, anxiety, and insomnia. And unlike Valium, they don't seem to have any, any uh, okay, yeah, the other side of that is not just side effects, but one thing they'll get Valium for and similar medications for sometimes is um, seizure problems. Uh, and there really doesn't seem to be any any seizure activity from California poppy. So, but it does all of the other things that something like Valium does much more gently. So you don't get the immediate heavy response uh, that, that Valium would give to somebody, but a gentle sedative without side effects. And because we are not allowed to use opium poppy and it's illegal and they'll send you deep into jail for growing opium poppy, it's the best alternative that the modern herbalist has. Now, on top of it, beautiful flower. So beautiful that the Spanish looked at California and said, ah, Golden Coast. So there you go. Eight flowers. Eight beautiful flowers. Roses. Daylilies. Lavenders. Nasturtium. Chamomile. Calendula. Coneflower. All these beautiful flowers growing in your backyard. And walking through your backyard and your neighbor goes, what a beautiful flower garden. And you realize it's a natural pharmacy and a source of natural multivitamins, and a source of food. Something that's going to be available to you in the best of times and in the worst of times. It can never be taken away. As long as the climate is suited to growing these things, you can have them available to you. And you get all of the beauty, and you get all of the medicinal effects as well. And remember, don't be afraid to do a few different things here. One, if you have any doubt about identity, make sure you get help and you get help with identification, and you get advice for use. The master herbalist has been trained, and there's probably one near you, and if you have any questions, you should seek out the help of somebody like that. If you're a pregnant woman or a lactating woman, please really use some discretion with trying these things on yourself. Also, stick to the things that are most safe. Don't use just my stuff. Go out and get some good books on the subjects. Follow the indications and try them. But, but experiment, especially with things that you know are safe. Come on, mint, chamomile, and rose. All right, you can throw that together in some hot water and make a tea out of it. It ain't going to hurt you. You should survive no matter who you are, unless you're going to be allergic to one of those plants. And, you know, you have to, you know, check for allergies by exposure on your own. But experiment with them. Occasionally, don't run to the medicine cabinet. You know, if you get an ant bite, unless you're allergic and you need to go get a shot so you don't die, it's going to be okay. It's just a freaking ant bite. Poultice something up that you know is safe, even if it's not something I gave you. If you know it's safe, put it on the amp bite. Usually you get an amp bite, you get three or four. Treat one with one thing, treat one with the other, treat one with a third. This is how our ancestors learned these things, trial and error. Now, we have so much of, a, of, a, of an advanced state on them. We have modern medicine when we need to rely on it, and we have all this historical documentation available to us. So make sure that you're utilizing that and trying it. Scratch yourself. You know, go out and get some plantain or plantain, depending on how you pronounce it. Poultice it up, put it on the wound, and cover it with a bandage. Compare it to the way that something else healed. I think you'll find that it heals with less infection and faster. And if you do end up with any infection, it's drawn out much quicker. But try it for yourself. Learn. 
Grow these things. Grow these plants. Learn to identify them. Take your time. Work with one or two at a time. Over a couple years, with one or two at a time, you'll be an encyclopedia of herbal knowledge. Now, you may not be a master herbalist unless you go to school and train with somebody for it. But you'll have a general knowledge and awareness that we've lost today. And as Dr. Christensen from Western Botanical says, it would be his goal to have an herbalist in every home in America. Maybe not an advanced herbalist, maybe not somebody that can balance kind of the dangerous things a little bit and know about interactions, but basic herbal treatments. I can't sleep tonight. Instead of one more beer, or instead of a a sleeping pill, go out in the garden and cut a little chamomile and mint and have a tea. Start with that. And just realize that none of this stuff is that hard. That we've been lied to by modern science about a lot of the effectiveness of these things. And as more and more crisis is happening in the healthcare system, and more and more research into these traditional medications are being looked at, the science is bearing out the traditional folk use at least half of the time. Now, there's, I, I gave you an example today. Chinese medicine, they treated breast cancer, right, with uh, the roots and shoots of daylily. And modern science is going, yeah, it doesn't really seem to do anything. Well, it's, put yourself 2,000 years ago in China, and you've had women that come to you with an infection of the breast, and you give them this, and it helps. If they come to you with a lump that seems to be killing them, what else are you going to do? So not all the folk uses of these medications work, but what we generally find is that a lot of them have a basis in scientific fact, and there's things that we can do in modern times with a better understanding of things like vitamins, minerals, nutrition requirements and stress levels to understand not just how they work, but why they work, and the things that we can do in our own lifestyle adjustments to enhance them. If you can't sleep at night, it's not just that you should be, you know, kind of a substitution. Instead of a a sleeping pill, I'm going to drink chamomile tea. There's also a reason in your life you can't sleep at night. You're thinking about something that you shouldn't be thinking about at that point. Maybe you need a change in your routine. Maybe you need a change in your job. Maybe you need a change somewhere in your lifestyle. So when we put that type of intelligent analysis together with herbal use and relying on modern medicine when it's required, we have so much more available to us than the people that paved the way so that we could do this with documenting all these things throughout history. So embrace them and embrace this and understand when you do so, you're embracing a part of your natural human past. And plant that garden because it's beautiful to have a bunch of flowers out in your backyard that can give you beauty, attract wonderful wildlife, and can help you heal as well. This has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Get stand.